I think in your response to other issues, you can find the connection to climate. So for instance, you know, if the U.S. government's going to spend a lot of money to try to stimulate the economy, that money should have a nexus to climate change. Welcome back to What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. My guest for this episode spent eight years as the chief speechwriter and confidant of President Barack Obama. The longest-serving member of the former president's foreign policy team, Ben Rhodes, was part of nearly every key decision that the president took, everything from signing the Paris Agreement to normalizing relations between the United States and Cuba, to the negotiation of a nuclear deal with Iran. Writing about his time in the White House, Ben said climate change was a central pillar of nearly all of Obama's bilateral and multilateral relationships, an approach he said ultimately led to the signing of the Paris Agreement, which he himself cites as the greatest foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. Since leaving the White House, Ben has spent much of the last four years calling for the Democrats to put climate change at the centre of US foreign policy, seeing it as both a geopolitical priority and a security risk. And this really was why I wanted to get him on the show, to examine the foreign policy and security challenges of climate change as well as the obstacles standing in the way of global action and what we can do to overcome them. Ben is the author of The World As It Is, a behind-the-scenes account of the Obama presidency and the near-constant battle between the administration's vision and its caution. His most recent book, After the Fall, is an attempt to understand what has happened to the United States since Obama left office and does so through the lens of politicians, dissidents, and activists around the world who are confronting the same forces that produced the Trump presidency. Ben is also a fellow podcaster and hosts the weekly podcast Pod Save the World. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Ben Rhodes. Well, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Since you left the White House, uh, you have spent a lot of the last four years calling for Democrats to put climate change at the heart of US uh, foreign policy. Um, And now, with President Biden, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, has said that the administration has done that. What, what's your sense of how they're doing? I, I think they're definitely moving in that direction, um, James. And I, I think, you know, what do I mean by that? I think it's important to, to establish that. You know, the United States government is a gigantic institution. And when you think about the last 20 years since 9-11 in particular, so much of it has been built to fight wars, to counter terrorism. That's, you know, what ends up making up the bulk of the staff at a lot of agencies, takes up a lot of the resources. And climate was kind of treated as a separate environmental concern. 
What we found in the Obama years is that in order to get to the Paris Agreement, that those last few years required making climate change like the leading or a leading issue in every bilateral and multilateral relationship we had around the world. You know, so at the G20, you know, with not just China and India, but with South Korea and Indonesia. And and, and that, you know, requires over time, I think, structural change in the State Department in the U.S. and the intelligence community. We were beginning to do that. <laughs> and then, of course, Trump came along and you couldn't fund anything that had the word climate attached to it. So the Biden team thus far, what I see them doing is this is at the top of their agenda. This is what they're talking about not just at climate summits, but at the G7. Um, they're, they're putting resources behind it. But I think it's going to take them time to kind of drive that into the U.S. government. The appointment of John Kerry, I think, begins to build out a capacity at the State Department. But I mean, I think what you need to do ultimately is kind of fold that into the workings of the U.S. government. I was uh, very interested in the appointment of John Kerry as the special envoy on climate because, of course, he was the Secretary of State at the time that the Paris Agreement was negotiated and gotten over the line, and he was in Paris uh, for those negotiations, so I saw I, I saw that as a, a very significant signal, you know, of a reversion to, uh, you, you know, a more internationalist engagement on on climate change, um, but also because he has all of those personal relationships yeah. with his counterparties, and you know, particularly China, but also. Uh, Europe and the UK and, and and other you know countries around the world as well. Um, uh, one thing I think in here in New Zealand that we don't really take account of very often is is you know how how those uh, kind of relationships between kind of the very big powerful countries in the world uh, get things over the line or not. Were, were you in the team that were, were you in Paris? Did you were you part of that team that was over there? At the yes, time? yeah, yeah, I was in Paris. So I, I was there as an observer. I was in opposition at the time. We we got into government a couple of years later, um, and and it really did strike me that although you had you know two hundred odd countries and and country like parties negotiating, that really it did come down to that relationship between the U.S. and China coming to an agreement um, with all of the backing of the, in particular the the French diplomatic corps who just absolutely turned the taps on to try and get it over the line uh, and the weight of other countries around. But but really at the centre of it was that um, that relationship between China and the US. And, and I, I'm curious about what your thoughts are. You know, here we are six years later. How do you think that's going to affect climate policy in the coming years? I think it's, it is a, an incredibly complicated situation. <laughs> uh, you're right. The, the U.S.-China bilateral climate agreement that was reached in Beijing in November of 2014, I was there with President Obama, where we each kind of upped our emissions reduction targets kind of in tandem, kind of sending the message to our respective allies, partners, uh, other countries that might look to China in the developing world that, you know, we're going to get this done. Let, let's go. And, and then the rest of the year from that agreement through Paris was essentially filling in the other commitments. And then, as you said, shaping the, the particulars of the agreement, which is significant work. I don't want to diminish it. Um, and then the, the last kind of big piece was trying to pull India into a more ambitious place to get into the agreement. But, you know, as a, as the world's two largest economies, um, and emitters and as countries that have tremendous influence beyond, um, their own economies, 
um, the U.S. and China are always going to be at the center of of whatever climate progress is made, um, particularly because Europe and you know is ahead of us in a lot of ways in dealing with the challenge, um, and it's U.S. and China needing to kind of bring along the rest of the world. Um, and I think the tensions between the U.S. and China inevitably are going to infect all parts of the relationship. Um, I would argue that climate and health, right? So like pandemics and climate change should be the kind of thing that is separated out from other geopolitical tensions. Um, but the reality is that, you know, it helps to have a pretty constructive relationship with Xi Jinping to get to that Paris agreement. And that's going to be a little more complicated now. I also think though, that ultimately nations make decisions in their own self-interest. And I think for the Chinese, part of our assessment was they had a, a domestic vulnerability from air pollution and air quality. And so their interest in transitioning more aggressively to clean energy is self-interested too here. They, they like, So while I think the U.S. leadership matters a lot, like I don't think it's always just like favors to us, you know, for China to do this. I think where it gets complicated though is where the U.S. would like to see, I think, greater Chinese action beyond China's borders is, is along the the Belt Road Initiative, where they are financing a lot of dirty infrastructure. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, that gets, I think, trickier when you have these kinds of geopolitical tensions. The period when uh, Donald Trump was president, um, that kind of four, four years, you know, where the U.S. really did retreat from engaging with the world on climate change, uh, left obviously quite a big gap, especially after the I guess the leadership that was shown um, with the Obama administration and getting the Paris Agreement over the line. My sense, and and this could be an entirely naive view, was that at the time uh, the uh, Chinese kind of stepped into the gap there, um, and you know that was a period of time where they came out and said that yes, they were actually going to sign up to a net zero target. It's for 2060, and you know uh, much of the developed world is aiming for 2050. Um, but that was a very significant move for them because, again, my sense of the Chinese, they tend not to make these commitments in public without having done the homework to know that they're actually going to be able to deliver on that because, you know, reputation is so important. Um, uh, and now that there's this kind of new engagement, it, it's just not clear to me how how uh, that dynamic is going to play out, whether they're going to say, well, actually, we'll kind of step back a little bit because we don't see that that gap is there anymore, or whether they go, great, now there's a willing partner, we can work with, you know, there's a lot of stuff we can't work with the US on, but we can work with them on climate because we know we know that because we have. You know, I've just got a sense of, you know, how, how you think that interest is, is going to play out because we are at a, at a very important inflection. I mean, every year is an important year yeah. in climate policy, but, you know, it, this year feels particularly important because we haven't had a COP yeah. in two years. You know, the US's situation's changed. We're at the start of the Paris period now. Time is running out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, the Chinese um, continue to move, I think, in a constructive direction, continue to get more ambitious with some of their domestic targets. And I do think and enjoyed to some extent kind of being seen as taking the role that that the U.S. might have played. Um, I think that the the challenge now going forward is like 
the work needs to be done inside of our own economies, right? Um, and the U.S. has a lot of work to do. We can talk about that in our, in our own economy. But also the wiring of the entire global economy needs to be transitioned um, towards clean energy. And so where the U.S. and China need to collaborate now is not just in kind of the announcement of their domestic targets, and they do need to do that. Um, but in, you know, how are we working to phase out subsidies for fossil fuels around the world? What initiatives can be pursued through the G20 um, to deal with different types of emissions? What, again, like I mentioned earlier, like the Chinese should not be financing coal plants on the Belt Road Initiative. I'm sure the U.S. could be doing more to prevent deforestation in, in certain places. I mean, so the, the, the collaborative nature of a global climate policy um, increasingly requires the big countries to work together, not just in announcing what they're doing, but in, in trying to help bring along and obviously financing clean energy in, in poorer countries. Um, and, and, and again, I think when you have a, a frosty relationship, that that can hurt it. Now, the, the other side of that coin is I think sometimes superpowers, and this has certainly been the case in U.S.-China relationship, when there are, is a lot of tension in some areas, they kind of look for the bright spot. Like what's the one area where we can kind of keep things positive and, and, and have some constructive progress? And I think that's how the Biden team is thinking about climate change. I hope that's how the Chinese are thinking about it. Um, and, you know, I know this from talking to a lot of the folks who are in the Biden team before they went in, there's this idea of like, well, climate change can be the area, the one area where we see real potential for U.S.-China cooperation when there's going to be this competition and confrontation in other areas. So I think you try to leverage the relationships of a John Kerry and others um, together with this idea of like the pitch to the Chinese is, look, you know, the, the world would like to see us work it out on something. And, and climate is the area where we have the most common interests, but, but it's not an easy task. Do you think it's possible to have climate change as the, that organizing principle across, you know, foreign policy, whilst still maintaining, you know, the the need to have some pretty tough conversations in other areas, like say human rights? I think like, is, there a trade, is, yeah. is there a trade off there in the relationship? I think you know, I think we'd be lying. To act like there's not to some extent. Um, this to me is the biggest single question right now in American foreign policy. <laughs> um, there's no question we have to move off of the 20 year prioritization of terrorism. I think everybody in the Democratic Party at least pretty much gets that. Um, and, you know, there's kind of three three different frames for how to think about how America organizes itself and what do we prioritize in the world. One is China. Um, and I think that would be the wrong one um, to just kind of make everything about a Cold War with China. And that's that's driving our defense budget. That's driving our diplomacy. That's driving our industrial policy, you know, the rest of it. Um, the other is climate change and the, the logic being that, you know, for the next 30 years, this is going to be the biggest issue and it has multi mul multiple dimensions, because in addition to dealing with climate change, you're going to be dealing with refugee flows. You're going to be dealing with instability tied to climate change mitigation. So that's going to require a lot of resources and a lot of restructuring. But then I think this issue of democracy um, and democratic backsliding in the U.S. and around the world and, and, and how that interconnects with human rights uh, you know, clearly merits higher prioritization and greater attention. Um, to me, 
what's interesting about both democracy and climate as an organizing principle is it really starts at home. You know, so um, the most important thing America needs to be doing in tandem is dealing with climate change and our domestic policies and trying to fix our democracy domestically. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, but I, 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 the way I try to, to think about this is I do think that the United States needs to get back to organizing around democracy globally. Um, at the same time, though, what is the big multilateral project that we are engaged in? You know, it was the war on terror for, you know, most of the last 20 years, even if the Obama administration was trying to unwind that. I, th I still think that, you know, uh, it, it's at least worth the effort um, to uh, try to organize a lot of what you're doing around the promotion of, of, of democratic values and successful democracies in the world. You know, while recognizing that the big multilateral project in the world is also going to be climate. Um, and I'm not sure exactly when the trade-offs would come and how they would come. Um, uh, because I, I guess essentially the idea is if we're imposing consequences on China for a genocide of Uyghurs, um, are they going to say that they'll start you're building more coal plants. I'm not, I'm not sure. Like that, that's worth testing. Um, because again, I think it's in a collective self-interest to deal with climate change. I also believe that if the world continues to drift in this kind of nationalist and authoritarian direction, that's, those leaders aren't going to deal with climate change. You know, the, the, one mm. of the things that was so frightening me about the interconnection of the anti-democratic trend and, and climate is you're looking around and you see, you know, a few couple of years ago, you see Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping, frankly, Narendra Modi, Bolsonaro in Brazil. That is not a guy who's dealing with climate. There's something about a, a particular brand of nationalist and authoritarian leader that is not going to be your best long term partner for dealing with climate. Um, so I actually do think in the long run, democracy is is helpful to climate change policy. But. I recognize we don't have a long run on climate change. So it's a, I, I acknowledge the com complexity of it. There's a, just off the back of that, there's a, a saying that um, winning slowly on climate change is the same thing as losing mm -hmm. um, because we're, we're, we're up against the clock. And uh, I think that that runs into and up against uh, the democratic tradition of trying to build, you know, consensus across society and, take everyone with you and do all those things that yeah. I frankly strongly believe in, but it's a slow process. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, what are your reflections on the tension between uh, the need for speed uh, on the one hand um, and the ability of democracies to be able to take everyone with us and maintain a level of social con consensus over multiple changes of government? Within the United States, I have completely abandoned any hope in bringing people along. Um, you have an entire political party that has gone insane here. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they they don't believe climate change exists and they believe Donald Trump won the election. The idea and, and you know, frankly, some of that is because of the the the, the fossil fuel interests that finance some a lot of the Republican Party. So so like uh, to me, what does that mean for now? I, I would be. You know, I, like I, I'm all, we have this crazy system right now in the United States because it requires 60 votes to get certain things done in the United States Senate, 50 mm. votes to get um, budget matters done. And there's this debate happening about whether or not to do an infrastructure package that 
reaches that 60 votes, so it gets a bunch of Republican support. To me, the, 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 the short answer is I'd be spending every single dollar I can on clean energy and climate action through that 50-vote process without regard to whether or not I bring a couple of Republicans along for some totally drop in the ocean spending on climate on a bipartisan bill. I mean, I, I think that the Democratic Party has to move with force across spending, regulation, every vehicle available to us um, to be making the transformations we need in our economy to deal with climate change. Um, that, to me, is far more preferable than sitting around trying to convince 10 Republicans that climate change is real and so they should spend, you know, $40 billion on something instead of the, the hundreds of billions of dollars that, that need to be spent ASAP. So when, and then get on with it. Yeah, you know, and, and frankly, the thing about spending, and we saw this in the Obama years, right? So we had, I think, $80 billion in the, in the, in the first uh, spending bill, the Obama administration, on basically wind and solar. And that $80 billion ended up capitalizing an enormous growth in U.S. wind and solar that far exceeded our expectations and projections. And so I think the point is, some people might say, well, Ben, this is a temporary thing because the Republicans could win some election or they could win the next congressional election and that's it. You can't do anything more. If you spend uh, what we found, though, in the Obama years is because we did so much um, that the economy was adjusting even without the government being involved um, so that there were still positive trajectories when Trump was doing nothing based on what we'd done. It wasn't sufficient, obviously, but the point is that if there is a massive influx of resources combined with government regulation, the economy, the companies will adjust, asset managers will adjust, the markets will adjust. And, and so it will have a permanent impact, even if it's just what can be done in a, in a two-year period. You know, we saw this with Trump rolling back fuel efficiency standards for cars, which is one of Obama's most aggressive uh, you know, climate regulations. The auto companies weren't like, oh, okay, now we'll start making gas guzzlers again because we can. They had already adjusted to higher fuel efficiency standards. And frankly, they also saw that consumers, a lot of consumers want to buy cleaner cars. And so, so again, I think a huge, a big push can, can make a more lasting impact than kind of the cynics who say, oh, but what happens when the pendulum swings back, I think. Yeah, I mean, w one of the things I noticed was that the U.S. was hitting its climate targets, even though the yes. federal government was, you know, missing an action on it. And yeah. and that was because the, the economic momentum had really built up there. Exactly. And exactly. I, th I think for, uh, I mean, in, here in New Zealand, we're, we're still at the cusp of that transition. So our, our you know, we're, emissions growth and economic growth are still linked to each other. They are starting to decouple, but it is, you know, only only now at that point where where things are starting to to shift. So, uh, that, I think that momentum is is really important, right? Um, yeah, and, and it does it does seem to take it to take quite a big shift. I, yeah. I'm really interested in in the extent to which. You know, because some of the tensions in the US, and I see them elsewhere, we had the yellow vest protests in France, you know, and there are kind of pushbacks in, in various countries and a little bit of pushback here as well. When you have the vast majority of the population is highly concerned about climate change, wants the government to do more, and then the government introduces a policy, and then you get a reaction against that policy because somebody has to change something somewhere uh, in, in the system. Um, and 
I wonder about the just transitions piece and the extent to which, you know, that battle is, I know, I know it's played out in politics, but, you know, in terms of the party politics that you've got. Inside the how, Democratic Party. Well, inside the Democrats, but also between Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, the, the kind of stuff around coal and, you know, you've got some states that rely yeah. very heavily on coal. Yeah. Uh, and how you are able to uh, support people who are in those industries to, you know, find other work where they're getting paid yeah. at least as well using skills that are roughly analogous to the ones they've got now. Has yeah. that been a feature of, of that transition? It has. I mean, you know, with coal in particular, um, you know, the, 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 there's, you know, it was from funding to kind of mitigate retrain workers. Um, one of the challenges we run into is like the Republicans don't like that funding because they don't like the concept of the transition. And so you end up not getting as much funding as you want. But I think part of, you know, I think there were a bunch of studies that showed once Trump came back in and started trying to kind of revitalize the coal industry, like a lot of those workers didn't want to go back to, to the coal mines because they'd gotten other jobs. And, um, and so I, I think there absolutely has to be, um, you know, a concerted effort, whether it's in worker retraining whether it's on incentivizing the development of new industry in, in areas um, that are dependent on the fossil fuel industry, um, th- that has to be a part of your strategy. And look, some of that is pure politics, right? Because, um, you know, in, in, in Texas um, or Pennsylvania, states that are, are highly dependent on, on you know, fracking in the Pennsylvania case and obviously Texas oil and gas, um, you, you know, th- those are also politically important states, let's be honest, right? And, and particularly, obviously, Pennsylvania has been a swing state, and that made it more complicated for, for Joe Biden on the fracking issue. But the, the, the again, recognizing that we don't have that much time, but the in Texas, what you've also seen is a huge growth in renewable energy industry. And, and I think if people can see that there's a future of job creation, and frankly, oftentimes higher quality jobs, that is building in the solution to climate change. And so that they're, they're not just seeing what's going away, they're seeing what's coming. Um, that's ultimately the only way you can manage the, the local politics um, or the sector-based politics here. And, you know, um, that's part of what Joe Biden's doing. I also think, though, that like while I'm all for the whole like, you know, the jobs message around climate change, I do think we still need to be making the environmental security and moral arguments too. And sometimes I kind of worry it starts to seem a little too like, well, this is just about jobs. Well, it is absolutely about jobs, but let's also, you know, the younger voters that I meet, and that's kind of who I engage with a lot, like they, they would like there to be an inhabitable planet too. And, and, and so I think um, we uh, in politics need to make, both arguments um, at the same time. We don't necessarily have to choose between them. That seems to run uh, counter to what we were talking about before with the geopolitics of things, which, you know, uh, tends to be pretty bare knuckle at at some level. You know, when you're talking about national interests, um, you were talking about uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is financing a lot of um, kind of high carbon projects uh, along the way as well. Um, do you think that there's a role or 
uh, yeah, do you think there's a role for making that moral case for the transition in the geopolitics of climate change as well? Does it make any difference or is it all about national interest? I think it does. I, I, I think it's necessary to continually make the moral argument. Um, people understand this intuitively. And part of the argument that you're seeding, right, is if in India, there are already massive climate effects. And if you're making the moral argument, you know, you're creating a form of pressure um, on the government to do more. Um, and by the way, I, I put that pressure on the U.S. too. I'm not saying, you know, like we should be, we, we've been a laggard in a lot of these areas too. But but I, I think that um, precisely because the the consequences of climate are becoming more apparent and are being lived in, abund- in every country in the world at this point. Um, the moral argument is also a means of creating some political pressure. And by the way, autocratic countries feel political pressure too. Um, it's a little different, obviously, than when there can be an election. But like, um, like I said, I think that in China, one of the game changers was the pressures they were feeling because the biggest dissatisfaction with the Communist Party was around air quality and pollution. Um, and when you start adding heat and extreme weather events to that, um, a moral argument kind of intersects with a pretty bare knuckled, um, you know, uh, uh, form of kind of top down and bottom up pressure. We're, we're dealing with a, a version of that in the Pacific. So, you know, the Pacific Island uh, countries that we're particularly connected to uh, are amongst those that are really getting it in the neck quite early when it comes to the effects of climate change. Um, sea level rise in the in the Western Pacific is higher than in other parts of the world. Um, and, you know, the effect on salination, uh, the effect on the kind of cyclone season and so on is, is horrendous, right? So there's a lot of that going on. And at the same time, uh, you know, China's playing an increased role in the Pacific, doing aid projects or, or other things that are connected to the Belt and Road, and and some of those things, they make a case are assisting the islands with their resilience and adaptive capability when it comes to climate change. You know, particularly around hard infrastructure stuff, which you know the Chinese are um, um, pushing. And at the same time, there's a concern that that then creates a dependency, uh, you know, significant debt um, burden on those islands, um, and and so on. And, and yet we don't have the scale that China's got to be able to deploy resource in the same way. So, you know, I think there's a tension there uh, yeah. between, you know, those things. And, and I'm, I'm, how do you balance those kinds of tensions? I think, look, in an ideal world, um, I think that uh, climate mitigation funding should be pooled so that it's not this tool of geopolitical leverage and influence. I mean, that was what the Green Climate Fund was supposed to do. Obviously, it was not capitalized to the extent it should have been. Obviously, countries like China want to spend money. The reason they want to spend money bilaterally is because they want influence um, or multilaterally through Belt Road, which they basically control. Um, so ideal, I think, is, and this is something to work on a cop, is to create more funding mechanisms that are, you know, truly multilateral and entirely about climate mitigation to to remove this kind of choice that uh, say Pacific Islands might might feel like they have to make. I think secondly, um, there really does need to be, I think, um, 
an approach taken by the U.S. Or, 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 or other allies in New Zealand could do this in the Pacific, although it's complicated, where they have an understanding of the risks of some of the, the investment you're describing through Belt Road. I mean, some nations have had terrible debt traps. Um, and and the, fa- the smaller you are um, and the less resources you have, um, if China is, you know, financing a bunch of infrastructure projects that are short-term political boon for you that are putting you in a massive debt trap that might exceed any capacity you have to pay, well, they're going to come calling for, for your vote on every issue at the United Nations for, you know, basically whatever they want. And um, I, I, I don't think it's, you know, wrong to point that out. Um, nations are sovereign will make their choices. So there's limits to this, but, um, and look, it should pressure us to up our game, you know, the, the U S and Australia and New Zealand to, to be a better partner, um, to, to Pacific nations who in some cases the U S has kind of taken for granted or seen as, as just a security uh, interest. So, um, you know, that's another piece of this because yeah, I, I am, I do, I am concerned about that because what can it seem like, well, you know, this, how is it not a net positive? They get some infrastructure, maybe some climate mitigation. It can become a net negative. And I don't say that just because the Chinese Chinese government might have some new votes at the UN. I, I mean, if, if an island is trapped in debt um, and basically loses its sovereignty, I'm not sure that's a long-term win for them either. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we have tended to do virtually all of our aid work in the Pacific bilaterally, uh, in part because those... Um, small island states often find it very difficult to access the capital from the multilateral funds. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, the system kind of just doesn't work for them. Um, and because yeah. we have such high levels of migration between ourselves and the islands and, you know, yeah. populations that live in both and so on, it, it, it kind of makes sense for us to, to, you know, work directly, but we, you know, I, 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 we're a small country too, right? So. Uh, yeah, I'm not just saying this because I, I like, you know, Kiwis. And um, I mean, you guys have a really deep and in, including a migratory relationship that China doesn't. Um, and and so now that said, I, I, I think it's important for, um, you know, when you're looking at COP and you're looking at for financing mechanisms for climate mitigation, addressing some of those in, uh, difficulties in, um, in, in, in Pacific Island nations absorbing multilateral aid, you know, something that should be, should be pursued. Um, but, but I, I do think, you know, New Zealand clearly has a special relationship for, with, with a number of, of those countries that, that that would suggest you know a, a, a bilateral type relationship. Again, I think with China, it, it, plugging them into this is what you know the uh, plugging them into the Belt Road just raises the questions of the uh, the, the the I mean a lot of those countries I, I you know the deeper they get into it, the less good the deal seems, and and that's just the reality. And so I think that's just something that Pacific Island nations need to be you know wary of. Mm. And it's it's already having an impact in their politics. I mean, you're seeing like you know, strange you know election um, com- uh, disputes and fistfights, and I mean, you can sense that it's not necessarily been a healthy development. You know, no, I, and it worries me because you know, with the <clears throat> growing sort of tension between the U.S. and China, the Pacific becomes piggy in the middle. <laughs> yeah, you know, when yeah. when the when the 
when the tensions were primarily between the Soviet Union and the U and the USA, you know, Europe uh, yeah. was picking the middle. Europe has, you know, scale, <laughs> so uh, it in in it had the ability to some extent to be able to manage the that tension, you know, um, and kind of get through it. And and I just I do worry that. Uh, that in the Pacific, it, that that doesn't you know happen, and so you you kind of end up with you know a group of very vulnerable countries uh, with increasing climate effects, um, whose economies have been completely trashed by the COVID pandemic because so much of the revenue was tourism. Uh, who are just kind of going, okay, well, you know, honestly, if someone's looking to build us an airport or <laughs> a road or something like that, we'll take it uh, because yeah, yeah. You know that it's sort of time. It's kind of desperate times, right? I, yeah, I wonder yeah. if, if 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 we just. I want to move a bit further south because yeah. I'm I'm curious about the Antarctic as well, and and how that featured in the Obama administration's thinking about climate change and security, uh, because that's another area where we're starting to see some of these tensions play out as well, and you know, sort of. Related to the Pacific, but different from the Pacific, because of course it's also uh, scientifically one of the um, one of the most important places because it's where all the ice is, uh, and and so I, I wonder what what your sense of of how things are likely to play out in Antarctic uh, politics. I mean, I think the the the, the, the basis is trying to prevent you know um, the. the this becoming another venue for geopolitical military resource conflict <laughs> and, um, and, and, and through kind of perverse incentives, right? Because of the greater access that comes from warming climate. And so, um, there, I, I think it's just trying to establish what well, our approach was, and I think continue to be an increasing effort, to try to establish multilateral norms and standards and, and kind of try to put a framework around this that, tries to create guardrails against, um, that kind of competition. It's, it's hard work, but, um, but I think, I think that's what, you know, I really do think that's what animates us policy more than any more nefarious interest. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly an area where we're seeing increased activity as well. Uh, and, and it, it's not, not necessarily all for the good, yeah. uh, in, in terms of the direction of travel there. So, um, and, and of course, that makes what is also a, a very delicate region uh, just, you know, put, puts that that ecology. So you um, guys are seeing travel um, as a as a vulnerability too. Yeah, travel, base building. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, just, I mean, it's it's a very very sensitive environment. Uh, yeah. And you know, like you say, there is the potential for resource extraction there. Well, that's um, yeah, that's as, yeah. As the ice melts. Like I think that I, I I just think that like what's you know th this speaks to is and this gets to making climate kind of an organizing principle like the the amount of new issues that are created by the effects of climate change are going to require new international agreements new modes of resolving disputes you know and this is another example of that where you have to get the right grouping of countries around the table um, uh, and, and just try to channel this into the same kind of diplomacy that you would have applied to, you know, like some major issue 
in the Cold War, like arms control, right? I mean, it's it's this is this is not going to be a temporary set of issues. Um, and 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 even to your point earlier about the Pacific and and resource challenges, I mean, this is why I think you know in the Obama years, and and this is continued to be a characteristic of U.S. policy, kind of encouraging greater connectivity, you know, between New Zealand and Australia and ASEAN countries and Japan and South Korea and India. It's not just a geopolitical thing about China. It's basically about like, there are a lot of shared problems here. And the mm. closer everybody gets to each other and the more multilateralized these problems are, I, th- I believe it'll lead to better outcomes. Uh, do you think, what do you think of the state of the multilateral system at the moment then? I think it doesn't, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's hanging on by a thread, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not what it ever, you know, used to be in the last, uh, certainly, certainly in the post-Cold War years, I guess it had its own dysfunctions in the Cold War. Um, and cause look, I think the, the kind of collapse of American standing to some extent as well as some things the U S did outside of the, uh, international border combined with Russia's kind of just trying to attack the wiring of the international order combined with China essentially creating its own set of rules outside of it. Um, you know, it's in real trouble. Now to me, uh, what's interesting about that is that it's probably easier to build out a more functioning international order on a relatively newer issue like climate change than on, certain kind of legacy security issues, like how does the UN Security Council function? I mean, without being too nerdy, one of the things I thought was the most interesting about the Paris Agreement is it was actually the first agreement of its kind that seemed to kind of actually reflect the world as it is in 2016. You know, it it wasn't just the US and Europe and New Zealand and Australia and Japan. It was everybody. And the Chinese were playing a role commensurate to their influence in the world. And and, and, you know, the Indias and Brazils and Indonesias mattered as well as, you know, the, the traditional, um, West. And, and, and so to, to me, climate should be a place where, um, in a, in a way, it's actually easier to build a, a better functioning international order over time, both because everybody has an interest and because you've got a framework in Paris, but also because you don't have some of the same flashpoint things about, War and peace, you know, um, the rest of like the Security Council, um, uh, even, you know, so, so that may, I mean, I, I know that's easier said than done. I know that, you know, um, uh, uh trade has been a, a difficult issue to manage internationally and it has some overlap with climate, but, um, but I, I that, that's my optimist view of it. I, I um, I, it's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I mean, my, my own experience of, of the you know the the COP process, the international uh, the, the UNFCCC negotiating process, yeah. um, is that partially because there was no particular organisational structure set up at the outset thirty years ago. You have this extraordinary uh, uh, situation where essentially any single country can veto yeah. the entire process in, on, yeah. on anything. And, and yeah. so progress becomes incredibly hard, especially when most of the negotiating teams seem to be old trade negotiator hands who are yeah, yeah, kind exactly. of arguing yeah. from a national interest first kind of basis. Yeah. You know, you end up with a sort of a circular firing squad of interests and, and it doesn't lead to a lot of 
a lot of agreement, which I have to say, which is which is why I thought getting the Paris Agreement was remarkable in the first place yeah. because it still happened. But progress well, has say, been very slow since then. Uh, yeah, and I was going to say though, like that, and that. Well, be, I'm curious how much of, of a difference the Biden engagement because when the U.S. and China are kind of all in, the 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 veto gets a little more complicated for people to exercise or to even threaten. It does. Um, yeah. That said, I mean, that's the kind of thing that may have to be addressed going forward, right? I mean, you, this should be a living, just as emissions reductions targets and, you know, national action plans are living uh, documents under Paris. I think the structure itself um, should be uh, open to revision over time. Um, and again, all that's easier if the major powers are invested. Mm. Well, um, I just want to pick up something you, you were saying before about how you know, climate needs to be in every part of the government. Uh, and and when you're in the Obama administration, you know, you were starting to do that, you're building it out, that then vanished. You can see that Biden's rebuilding that, uh, certainly within the State Department, that it becomes sort of touch point everywhere, but also everywhere else in government. And one of the things in, in you talk about in your book, The World As It Is, is bandwidth uh, and, and administration. Yeah. And... You know, as someone who's operating in government, you know, <laughs> it's it's really a problem, right? Like we're dealing yeah. with a housing crisis. Uh, we've got um, huge problems with our uh, freshwater and stormwater and wastewater infrastructure. Uh, we've got you know climate change to deal with. There's a biodiversity crisis. You know, that, uh, like you can't you look at any part of society. There's an issue of some scale that that needs dealing with. Um, and and then you have something like climate change, which touches upon so many different agencies and so many different ministers' responsibilities. How do you stay focused on climate change at a time when you know you've got it? You've got all these other things that any government is going to have to deal with, uh, but also you've got a pandemic on and the economic response to that. And and if you don't have that crisis, there'll be something else, right? There'll be a GFC or a, you know, because, uh, I mean, when yeah. the Obama administration came in, you were just coming out the other side of the SARS virus yeah. uh, and, and the GFC, yeah. you know. So how, how do you maintain that kind of focus when, when there's so much for any administration of any size to have to deal with? Well, I think there are two things. Uh, I mean, more than two, but there are two that I'd focus on. Um, one is... I think in your response to other issues, you can find the connection to climate. So, for instance, you know, if the U.S. government's going to spend a lot of money to try to stimulate the economy, that money should have an access to climate change. <laughs> um, um, you know, if the um, U.S. government, um, you know, is, is, is making decisions, um, obviously about, about regulation, but about research and development for the future. Um, you know, there, there is going to be an infusion of, of, of resources there. Well, that should bring in climate change. Um, and infrastructure projects that, you know, these go beyond building electric power charging stations on, on, on roads. I mean, climate mitigation infrastructure is incredibly necessary and, you know, resembles kind of traditional infrastructure. You know, you're, 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 you're building things, um, uh, that have multiple uses, right? Um, and so, so part of this is seeing how climate change connects to your other priorities. But then the second thing that's really important that, that I, I think can't be emphasized enough is you need to create the bandwidth in the government. 
And so part of what I was talking about earlier is that like you have like a climate team at the State Department. And so we had in the Obama years, you know, Todd Stern, our climate expert, and then a bunch of climate people work there. And then we've got people at the Environmental Protection Agency. But all the people who work, if you looked at the, the regional bureaus, for instance, uh, at the State Department, you know, the people who handle Asia, Europe, et cetera, the people who manage the relationships on a regular basis, they're not climate experts at all. And in fact, those bureaus, and they're wonderful people, so it's not a criticism of them, but those bureaus have been hiring people who are experts on terrorism, and they've been promoting people based on their expertise on terrorism or some Middle East issue or some some other thing. And, and, and so the climate thing is like, it's an appendage to the government where it's like, oh, wait a second, uh, we should probably figure out what do the climate guys want us to, to raise with these people? That's not as good as having built into everywhere in the government climate experts, right? So there are climate experts sitting in every regional bureau at the State Department. There are climate experts sitting in the intelligence community, and they're not kind of in some closet somewhere, uh, but they're, they're actually all the country analysis that the intelligence community is doing factors in climate. Like you're just building a bandwidth in the government, in that machinery of government that is going to ensure that the climate perspective is there on, on everything that you're doing in your foreign and national security policy. Um, you know, I think even now migration, right? The U.S. has a challenge of migration from Central America. Well, a lot of that is, is climate effects, but, you know, the, those experts need to be a part of that too. So to me, that's, that's what this really gets to be about is that like you're building a government that reflects the fact that the climate issue touches just about everything and therefore you need climate experts sitting just about everywhere. Ben, you were a um, speechwriter uh, in the administration as well. And uh, I'm one of the dimensions of all of this that I've been very curious about is how, how you tell stories about climate change that uh, both uh, motivate people and get people to engage and provide some hope, uh, but also, and, and so gets them into action, um, or at the very least, gets them to support government action, uh, but at the same time doesn't scare them to death, you know, into thinking that we're doomed because, you know, anybody who looks at the data, it's a pretty dep- depressing picture right now. How do you straddle that? I think, communication sense? yeah, I mean, I think at this point, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the story you want to tell is about what we can do you know, how we, we can do the, we can do this big thing, this big project, there's opportunity in solving this problem. Um, you know, the, I, I think an underdone thing is telling the stories of people that are actually part of the solution, you know, whether that's the entrepreneur doing something cool technologically or with clean energy, or whether that's the activist who's promoting some positive change somewhere. Um, you know, you want to paint a picture, uh, to people of, 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 of something they want to be a part of, you know, that that's politics, right? Politics is trying to make people want to join in an effort to do something. Um, and I, I do think just scaring people, um, doesn't get you there that scaring people, uh, you know, can, can have the reverse effect because I think it can lead them to think, well, shit, this is, you know, we're, we're doomed, you know, there's nothing we can do. So we might as well fill up our car with that gas and, hope that someone invents a, you know, something to suck all the pollution out of the air. I mean, I, I think that's a, a, actually a per- perception out there. So, um, yeah, that, that to me is the, is the key here is, is, is a little bit more like, you know, rally the, the troops, um, you know, uh, as we'd say in the United States, the locker room speech, uh, let's go out there and, and win this thing. 
When you were crafting your media briefings or your speeches, how did you do that? Like when you're sitting down, I don't know, at your laptop or with a blank sheet of paper. Well, how with Obama, yeah, I mean, Obama with his speeches would always call me in and basically, you know, he wanted each speech to be a story um, and, and and not a list. You know, I think that so this and that that to me and that was his insight to me. And it's one I've never forgotten, which is that a speech that is a seven point list. OK, that might communicate your plan. But in, for this intangible political motivational aspect, um, a story is what motivates people. And so, you know, Obama, would, if we're, you know, how did we get to where we are? Like, what's the history and background of where we got, where, uh, where we are? What's the choice in front of us? And, and why does this course of action, why is it not only the, the right course from a policy perspective, but why is it the right thing? you know, by who we are to do that, you know? And, and so to me, um, even my much less interesting you know, media briefings, I always tried to think of like, what is the story we're telling here? And also how does it fit into the bigger story? I mean, with the Obama presidency, um, you know, I, I, I came to think you know, every speech is a story, but it's all part of one big story. And if you listen to Barack Obama's speech in 2004 that launched him onto the national political scene in the United States, and his farewell address as president, it's the same speech. You know, it's telling the same story about what a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy can do when people come together. Um, and so that 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 that'd be my main takeaway is just kind of like don't forget that 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 when you're communicating with any human being, you're telling them a story, and um, and and you you know you have to think of it in that, those terms. Is there a speech that you wish you'd written? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I I do. We kind of came close to writing speeches. You know, the the as you can sense from even our conversation, I, I was incredibly frustrated at the the risk inflation um, as related to terrorism relative to things like climate change um, or even other issues. Frankly, um, pandemics, <laughs> um, obviously, um, gun violence in the U.S., which takes exponentially times exponentially more lives and, you know, quote unquote, terrorist, foreign directed terrorist attacks. Um, so the speech that, you know, we even discuss giving sometimes is like the really hard version of that. Like the, the, this, there's something, the, the fear that is associated, the, the fear that Americans have around terrorism versus their lack of fear around climate change, around gun deaths, around pandemics is, needs to be corrected. And, and by the way, is also not innate to Americans. They've been scared. They've been fed fear, um, particularly, I think, through the Republican Party, through right-wing media in America. Um, as it relates to terrorism, they've been told not to be afraid of climate change. And, um, uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we I mean, the, there's sprinkles of that in, in Obama's speeches, but you know, a, a, a really a speech just about this question of fear and risk and how warped it is, um, is actually one that I think would have been really interesting. I'm, I don't know if it would have been effective. It's <laughs> just probably why the political advisors didn't want to give it. Um, but but it was the speech I wanted to write. Well, maybe you'll have a chance one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ben, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I've found this an absolutely fascinating conversation, um, both uh, kind of listening to your stories just in 
for their own sense, but also as someone who's involved in politics and in policy around climate change. It's been fascinating. So thank you so much for your time. No, thanks. And thanks for everything that, that you're doing on this, on all these things. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Ben for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next time, I will be sharing some of the highlights of a recent conversation I had with Noam Chomsky. I'll see you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.